Well, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Youth and Culture Podcast, where youth ministry and culture collide. I'm your host, Ryan Sebastian, and I am joined with my co-host, David Pinkham. And it is a miracle that I am sitting here talking to you right now, Ryan, because as of the date of this recording, we have six days left until my wife is due. (laughs) (laughs) to give birth. I have no idea why she hasn't gone into labor yet. (laughs) So you're going to be, so you're at, you're at the end of the labor process. You're at the point now where your wife is completely miserable Mm -hmm. and just waiting for this baby just to pop out. Yes. Although it has been balanced out because we've been having some renovations done in the house, which yeah, why would you do that this late in a pregnancy? But Hey, that's the timing, how it worked out. And uh, we now have a pantry. And so she is just happy as she can be because she has a pantry finally. So that's balancing out the miserable feelings of being super pregnant right now. So I think she's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, you don't have to make some of these late night trips to get some ice cream or Oh, I'm still making those, dude. (laughs) I got to tell you something. Maybe I'll tell it sometime on the podcast about the time I got locked in a Walgreens getting ice cream for my wife while she was pregnant. It was uh, it was quite the entertaining uh, entertaining episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's that's hilarious, man. I I I have to admit that I'm glad my I love my kids. I miss my kids being young too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm glad that the pregnancy phase of life in our family is done. Yeah. They say that once your kids are out of diapers, it's like getting a raise because (laughs) you are no longer buying diapers and those things can be expensive. (laughs) Yes. Extremely expensive. I'll agree with that. Yep. Well, I'm, um, I am, uh, looking forward to uh, this conversation, uh, to letting y'all listen to this conversation I had with uh, Michaela O'Donnell. Um, because we talk about, we talk about something that uh, I don't think uh, that as ministry leaders, we really contemplate. And that's this idea that yes, we're doing ministry if we're, if this is, but we're also, this is a job mm-hmm. at the same time. And uh, especially when we're in full-time vocational ministry and how how do we navigate the idea of of work of this being a work a job and also ministry and how in the world does those two things really coincide uh together and what does that look like yeah i think it's a hard balance uh and to be honest with you i i think this conversation will be helpful um i enjoyed it when i did the first listen through um, but I do think it's going to be one of those things that we're, we're as human beings, we're really not going to get it 100% figured out until kingdom come. And at that point, won't care anymore. <laughs> but um, I do think it's worth putting in the effort to figure out the balance and um, make sure that we have a biblical worldview on it. So I think this is going to be a very valuable conversation. 
Well, guys, stay tuned for our conversation with Michaela Woodbottom. Well, guys, I am super excited about today's interview. We're going to be talking about something that I think is really important, uh, not only in uh, a normal secular work world, but also in ministry. And that is this concept of making work uh, matter. And I'm very excited to be uh, talking to Michaela O'Donnell, specifically on her new book, about this topic. Before we dive into that, how about, Michaela, how about you introduce yourself a little bit uh, about who you are and and just your story? Yeah, for sure, Ryan. It's so good to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. I am the executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. And like you said, Ryan, I'm also an author. just released my first book, Make Work Matter, all about um, really finding meaningful work in a changing world, which is increasingly layered and complicated and comes with all the feelings for people. Before I did this work, I spent the last decade running a business with my husband, creative agency, where we made videos and do branding and things like that. Additionally, I'm a mom of two kids. I've got a a newly six-year-old and a two-year-old and uh, my family, my husband, my two kids and I, we live in Los Angeles. So that's, that's just a bit about me, Ryan. Okay, so in in your uh, I want to dive in, change ships, dive in right when your book because I've had opportunity. I haven't finished it, but I have an opportunity to dive into it. And I think the things you talk about in your book is extremely important in in any type of work field, uh, whether it be a secular or even ministry. Because sometimes we don't understand that yes, we're doing things in ministry that uh, God has called us to do, but at the same time, there it is a job. Um, it's a job with a purpose, and it, but it's still a job, um, and we and we have to understand that uh, there's a connectivity there as well. So you refer to to make work matter as being a roadmap for people to use in discovering deeper truths about what God has in store for them. So can you unpack some of the ways that they will be able to make these discoveries? Yeah, I think that's well said, Ryan. First, I mean, the work of the church, it is, it is work, right? And so thinking about our own work theologically is important. And in terms of people who are working specifically with emerging adults, with youth, they're asking these questions. And the theology and the sort of imagination that is being shared with them and lived out before them That's the imagination and the theology they're going to carry into their work lives, uh, most of whom are going to end up in industries far and wide, not necessarily working in the church. So how we live this out for the sake of our own souls, how we live it out for the sake of modeling, and then how we learn to talk about work and what I would say is interrelated but distinct, a sense of calling is just really critical. Um, So Maybe I can tell, talk to you a little bit about why, why I wrote this, the thing that gives a background for the roadmap and unpacking some of these things. My, my husband and I, we both went to seminary and we graduated in 2010, 2011. And that was right in the height of the Great Recession. 
And we were out there graduating, looking for nonprofit work, trying to, you know, my husband was trying to figure out, am I going to do the pastor thing? Or he kind of always internally felt uh, made and, and calibrated as an artist, but he was, he had just gotten a seminary degree. So he was wondering what to do with that. And just, we just kept hitting closed door after closed door, Ryan, just closed door after closed door. So I come from a family of entrepreneurs and teachers, the big Irish Catholic families in the Midwest and Nebraska. And if you trace the two things we do most often for work, we start businesses and we teach people things. So in this moment of crisis, Dan and I, well, really me and Dan being a very good sport, we decided to start a company. Um, Dan, like I said, Dan is an artist. And I said, what if we did, what if we sort of built a business around your skills? He was a really good sport. That led to many years of, uh, and, and that company is, he's still running that company, even though I'm working at Fuller now, of really flourishing uh, business clients that are making a difference, ranging from small nonprofits to global tech firms. And Ryan, it, it was in the process of trying all those things I never imagined that I learned a lot about discerning who I actually was as a person, what kind of gifts I really had. Um, how I might apply those gifts even more broadly in the future, even today. And so the first thing I'll say is that I, I sort of stumbled on this work by accident, actually. If you would have told me a decade ago that I'd be spending my work talking to people about their work, I would have been like, nah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like what I'm going to do. Um, but, but here we are. And uh, without getting into specifics yet, we can go there in a second. I took a lot of that process and kind of fumbling my way and a lot of my peers who were fumbling their way after seminary too, and let, the, let those experiences um, illuminate the questions I ended up taking into my PhD research. So the real question I had is, how, what does vocational formation, how do we be formed as people for God's callings in this chaotic, disruptive, ever-changing world? Then I went and did a bunch of research. That research kind of distilled itself down into a process, and then I just and then I took that process and spent a lot of time with real people, hundreds of people, just playing with different elements of that. And then finally, that yielded, uh, you know, what you're talking about. And I won't. I'll, I'll pause before just jumping in into into the whole process. But I think that backstory is important for how how it kind of even came to be. No, no, no absolutely not. Now. One thing I just, and I want to take kind of caveat into and uh, is this concept of, of work where we're talking about value and work. And, uh, and for us as youth pastors, ministry workers, um, that we don't see the connection between uh, the value of what we're doing and understand that it is, a, it is ministry, but it's also job. How, do we, how would you recommend us as ministry leaders connecting the two to understand that valuing our jobs, but, and also at the same time connected to ministry. How would you that's think a, you would connect those two together? That's a great question, Ryan. I, and this is something I, I hear people talk a lot about in very various forms of ministry. And I would kind of want to back it up and say, there's kind of two theological ideas at play here. One is a theology of work. And do we have a theology of work? Do we have a, you know, do we see it as something that's a punishment or it's kind of, you know, the, the, you know, something we have to do because life is hard and being humans require this? Or 
do we see that work is, yeah, like it, it is actually work. It's And so therefore it's hard, but it's a means to participate in what God's doing in the world. I, I would probably fall mostly on the second side, um, saying that it's a means to participate in what God's doing in the world, mostly because work shows up before the fall, Ryan. We, we get work in Genesis 1. And so it's like, okay, in the very first story that we get about God is God as maker, God as creator, said another way, God as worker. And then we get God making humankind an image of God saying, go, go, go and fill the earth and subdue it. And we get kind of this commission to be, you know, to mirror God, God's likeness in the particular way, which I think classifies as work. Now, like so many other things in human history, you know, sin does get in the way. So you've got corrupt systems and you've got people who exploit each other and greed that get in there. And so work has in many cases, not all, but it can become subject to those those forces. So that's when it starts to get complicated. So the first thing is, what does our theology of work say, right? And just how do we think about, like you said, our jobs? Then we've got this whole other category of theology of calling, right? It can be very easy for people to to conflate those two and to think, yeah, theology of calling and theology of work are the same thing. And I, you know, I teach as part of my work at Fuller. And one of the questions I ask students, so these are grad school students, but these are students who are coming out of youth groups and coming out of maybe even Christian colleges, you know, what is calling? And when we have a big group conversation, one of the things that we get down to is calling is a job I love. And I hear them say that. Now I'm, I'm facilitating. I'm not, I'm not providing answers yet. Calling is a job I love, or calling is the work I was made to do. And I say back, you know, that's a really beautiful sentence. Like, I wish, I wish that that was what the Bible said about calling. <laughs> However, it's not exactly what the Bible says about calling. The Bible it, it says a lot of other things that if we just focus on our work, actually hollows a theology of calling. So it's been helpful for me to think a little bit about calling kind of honestly, like a set of nesting dolls, right? Is you got the dolls that are nested within and in that innermost doll, it's the call to belong to Jesus. We see this in the gospels is Matthew four. Next call out, the call to participate in redemption, right? This is second Corinthians five. Then you get the call to create in service of one another, all the way back to Genesis one that I just mentioned. Okay. And then now once you've got all those nested, within your outermost doll is the call to all the particulars. The people, places, roles, sometimes jobs, sometimes tasks, moments. So what I would say to the person who's like in ministry thinking, okay, is it like, how does my calling and my job relate? I would say it's helpful to start to parse those out and then to think about your specific job as a minister, as potentially a particular place and role that God has called you to that you may express all these innermost callings, the call to belong to Jesus and to participate in redemption and create, but that it's not so it's not so linear that your calling equals your job. Yeah, yeah exactly. One thing that, um, again, it's similar to what you're saying, but it's also very different. You kind of articulated it even uh, even be way better than I could actually state. But one thing I explain when it comes to calling to, to a lot of people who are talking about I'm called to this and called to that is, it's like try to get them to understand that you're you're called to to obedience first, and out of out of your obedience, the obedience to Christ and serving Him, and out of that 
flows into whatever work or workplace that you're entering to. And that includes that includes ministry. And I, and I think that, and it's sad to say, and even almost, it's, it's sad to say that I'm, it's, I can say now almost 20 years ago when I first entered college, um, Bible college, and then the average, I believe, if I remember correctly, the average tenure of a youth pastor or a student pastor was, was about three years at that point. Uh, by the time I graduated out, uh, it shrunk to a year and a half. And, and now there's between a year and a half or even less even now. And one thing that I'm, I'm noticing, and you can correct, correct me if I'm, if I'm incorrect, um, but I think it's also tied to generationally our attitudes or philosophy when it comes to the value of work. Um, uh, when you look at Gen Xers to Millennials to Gen Z, uh, you're seeing a different value of what work is. And I think that that mentality is also see, possibly seeping in to how we see work and ministry collide. Uh, would you agree with that? Would you, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's really good, Ryan. Um, I think there's a lot in there to grab onto. One, I would just want to empathize with the fact that ministry can be very hard and that it's possible. Now, I don't, I don't know, but it's possible that there's a certain percentage of the people that you know we sort of just talk about who kind of end up dropping out pretty early, who didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. You know, it's like, dang, this is hard. And in a way that isn't quite right for me, or it's not quite time for me to do this. Okay. Now you're talking about something else though, where it's like the dang, this is hard and, and work really is supposed to be hard. I, I mean, but not without reward. Right. And, and so that, that's the, that's the tricky part. And I think that one thing I'm noticing, and I'm thinking about a, a lot of people I know that are younger that are, are really, really gifted and they've really got some value to add their perspective, their voice, whether it would be in youth ministry or, you know, going out into other industries or the marketplace. And yet those muscles haven't necessarily been strengthened, right? Those muscles of just like putting in a day. And then on the flip side, Ryan, I would say, okay, so there's this, this rising generation that's telling us like, okay, we, they, we don't necessarily want to work that hard. There's a part of me that's like, do they have something to teach us? Is, are we working too hard? Or, you know, and so then I get a little muddy all of a sudden. And so there's this dance. There's this dance between sometimes the, it's hard because it's not a good fit. Sometimes it's hard and we really do need to grow those muscles as part of, I think, Honestly, becoming an adult and being a you know contributing member to the kingdom of God, not that we're not contributing before we work. I wouldn't want to make that make that assumption, but you know what I'm saying. And then there's the other side where it's like, well, let's not work and work and work without reflecting on that. Like maybe, maybe there's something in there. So if you hear in me a little bit of ambivalence and a bit of wrestling, it's because I think that that ambivalence and wrestling reflects the tension that we're seeing, certainly generationally, but also in particular industries and in this moment where for the last couple of years, so many people's work have been impacted by COVID. And so it's, it's, we're just in a really unique season, Ryan. No, I agree. You made a good point um, about uh, the possibility of doing too much and slowing down. Uh, I think that's a phenomenal point because it particularly with in church world and ministry, um, and particularly student ministry, we were 
COVID kind of exposed that we were over-programmed, over-programmed and true ministry, relational ministry, diving into, into individuals and relationships and group and building that, that kind of has been on the back burner in some ways, uh, I, w- I would argue, the last 30 years. Uh, we were, we we're big on huge events, uh, smoke machines, lights, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Uh, but the focus was so much on the program production and less on building relationships and seeing students grow in their faith at a very uh, intentional level. And I think COVID kind of exposed it in a lot of our churches and, and even in my own ministry personally, exposed a lot of those cracks uh, in my ministry. I realized that I was not prioritizing things well. So that, that, that's actually a great point to make because I think COVID has caused us and forced us to slow down. And, and my prayer, my prayer too, and specifically in the church, is, uh, is to not get back to where we were. Um, and to re- actually slow down and really f- reflect on what m- effective ministry really looks like. So, so I thought that was a ph- phenomenal point. Uh, but one other thing I want, do want to ask, and to kind of caveat into this as well, is, is in your discussions with people about defining success, okay, defining success is, is something that everyone listening right now uh, is wrestling with. Either have or have wrestled before or wrestling with it right now. It's how to define success. So in your discussions with people about defining success, what are the four questions you ask them? And what was the common theme you found in their answers about success? Yeah, that's good. And just to echo on what you said a minute ago, I do think that COVID exposed a lot of things and helped us ask questions about what's essential. And whenever... One thing I think in terms of this conversation on vocation and on vocational discipleship, if you will, it's like if you're if you're helping people, if you're helping youth get really clear that God calls them to belong, right? To use your word, God calls them to be obedient, and that that is that those muscles are built in day by day situations. They're built going to soccer practice. They're built, you know, the texts that you do or don't send to a friend. They're built in how you talk to your parents and how you talk to, you know, for adults, how you talk to your spouse and your kids. And that those those moments really matter. And I think that we had a lot more of those ordinary moments the last couple of years with the loss of programming. And that's a gift. And so I commend you for wanting to center those ordinary moments that help people know they belong because I actually think that's what helps set people up to be more successful in their, since, since I'm a career person, in their careers. It's that anchoring, that steadiness that, you know, we get out and we get out in the world and we're trying to recreate the program and the noise and all the feelings that we were exposed to. Or are we trying to create this ordinary sense of being able to look someone in the eye and help them to know that God loves them and that they matter? And in, in this case, their work matters. And that that kind of stuff is it was at the heart of uh, this whole idea about success and failure, which kind of loops all the way back to the you know kind of roadmap for discernment. So I did. I asked people in my dissertation, but then also I just I started loving people's answers to these questions so much. I started asking them a lot in a lot of different spaces, and there are four questions. I asked, "How have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure?" What practices have moved you towards success? 
and what practices have helped you deal with failure? And the way that people answer those questions has been very, very formative for me. I've learned a lot. And I started with people who were objectively successful. And what I mean by that is, you know, they were running something and it was going well. And the people who worked for them basically said they're good at what they do. They were on mission. The finances were checking out. And the first thing I noticed, Ryan, is that people who were successful were much less comfortable talking about success than they were talking about failure, actually. When I asked them about success, they were like, I don't know. And, you know, we did these things, but here's all this other stuff we want to do. When I asked them about failure, they were like, oh, yeah, let me just kind of open up the history book and tell you everything we tried that didn't work and what we learned from it and how we would do differently this time. And so in that, the first thing I noticed is just this really up close relationship with trying things that might not work out, right? And this ability to lean into risk, which is part of the roadmap for discernment, right? We got to we got to try things. We got to take we got to do things and then ask what happened and how did that go? And how does that shape the way forward? The second thing that was shocking to me, though now I can't believe it was shocking to me, is that across the board, people described something that I can only describe as, I can only call empathy as a commonality of what made them successful. And the more I started talking to people, the more I realized it wasn't just it wasn't just kind of, the, you know, you would think of them talking to business people. Maybe they go and do listening listening experiments or they've got this whole kind of way to manufacture empathy. It wasn't like that. It was much more down to earth, something I've come to call practicing empathy along the way. And, you know, I do a lot with the Good Samaritan here because you think about it along the way, you know, you think about the book of Luke and think about the Good Samaritan. And that was very encouraging to me, Ryan, that these very successful people common to their experiences and even what made them able to not only tread water, but do well in a changing world was that they practice empathy with other humans. And so part of that roadmap in terms of discernment for me actually starts with empathy. It's, it's a four-step thing and it's related to some of these success and failures. The first is to practice empathy along the way. I often tell people, make a list of the people that you interact with every week, every day, every month. Now circle a couple of those people who might God be inviting you to move toward this week, right? Just very, very basic. Then after a week, part two is um, imagining, asking what if. Whenever we start to the move toward other people, whether it's students in our ministry, you know, you're thinking about, okay, how do we come out of COVID? Well, how do we not over-program? Maybe, maybe actually that move starts with practicing empathy with the you know, students who are entrusted to your care. And then once you're practicing empathy, that second move is really asking what if, right? What if we what if we cut half of what we're doing and we just, you know, gathered in the park or whatever it is? And then that those what if questions lead to taking next doable risks. That's number three. That risk stuff, you know, kind of comes up in success and failure. And the thing I'll say here is I'm talking about next doable risks. Things, not things that you need a bunch of money for or a bunch of time, but just things you can try this week. And then finally, step four is reflecting what happened, how to go, uh, what should we do differently next time? And that those are four things that start to distill some of those commonalities in all my conversations with people about success and failure. 
And then Ryan, what I just described, those four things, I've actually, we've actually done that at the Dupree Center for Leadership with a lot of people, over 250 people the last two years. And it, it helps people start to move vocationally from stuck to unstuck, discern little bit next things about what God might be inviting them to do. Um, so I, I say that just to say, it's not just theoretical. This is, this is stuff that helps us kind of get going in action. I, I'm, it's very interesting you're talking about empathy because that is... Um... To me, when I think of empathy, I think of connected to humility mm. um, in a sense that um, when you're empathetic, when you're really diving into understanding uh, people and how they feel and what they're going through, and you're really diving into that, um, that builds a level of humility in your leadership. Uh, and we all know, even there's a lot of studies out there, and I'm, I'm sure that you know this as well, that a lot of most successful people in industry including ministry, uh, great leaders have or very have a high level of sense of humility. Um, of course, you, you have in there as well, you have, you have in there people who are on the opposite end of the aisle that are somewhat successful, um, but that success doesn't always last with people who are on the opposite end of the aisle who are not practicing humility in their leadership. And there's many, many examples of that within industry and outside the church. Um, but I'm really glad you you mentioned empathy for the, for the fact of specifically us as ministry leaders. Um, you cannot you cannot uh, grow in your leadership, uh, grow in your ability to lead, and grow into what God wants you to do as as a leader as a ministry leader without first having empathy for those who you are leading and in your care and your ministry. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very, I'm very thankful that you mentioned that because I feel like that that sometimes um, this is not always the case, but I feel like sometimes in, in ministry I'm seeing more and more uh, pastors and ministry leaders uh, trying to go up the ladder, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, trying to go to the next best thing, and 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 not necessarily it's not necessarily bad if that's what God has called you to do if you feel like this is really the direction that he wants you but sometimes we're so focused on that that we forget uh, who we're actually leading and we're not being empathetic we're not being obedient to our calling and pouring into them as we're because we're so focused on reaching the next step or whatever that may be in our leadership journey yeah, that's that's really good, Ryan. I, I feel like I've seen that too. And it makes sense. And it kind of is in this moving fast world that we're describing. Um, one of the reasons why I love the Good Samaritan passage so much, first of all, it's kind of like Christianity 101. Most people know the story, so it's a good one to use. But the thing I love about it is that empathy actually interrupts the Samaritan right? He's, he's, he's going from some, he's going, he's going from point A to point B. He's got a donkey. He's on the move. He's going fast. And yet he moves to the side of the road for someone who, who needs attention, who needs friendship, who needs care. And then he presumably slows down his own way forward, right? This would be contradictory to what you just, what, to what we're just, we're talking about here to that person who's trying to go fast he slows down his way forward because he realizes that is the work. That is the work. And I, I don't know. And now I'm adding, you know, some imaginative liberty here, but I'm like, okay, so he's going slower on the Jericho road, but when he gets there, how does what he's doing, please God, 
you know, and, and there's just this qualitatively more robust thing that starts to happen when we become interruptible. And I am, I'm a person. I like to move and I like to go fast and my day is, you know, packed and I, and I lead a busy team and I, and I'm a mom of two kids. And so I wouldn't want to paint the picture that I'm over here just kind of like walking around waiting for empathy to interrupt me. That's, that's not the case, but it's because I am so busy and so programmed and so down to the minute. And because God has literally, quite literally, Ryan had to like, you know, smack me on the forehead and be like this, this over here, not that thing that you're all wrapped up in. It's this because doing enough of the things that God brings about in our lives that interrupt us, that stacks up to somebody who becomes a better pastor somebody who becomes a better leader, somebody who has, as you described, humility to know it's not all about them. And that is mission critical to being able to join in with what God's doing. It's mission critical to being able to serve, you know, kids and anyone in in a church well. It's mission critical to leadership far beyond the church, right? So I'm with you. No, absolutely. And also, uh, that brings the next thing I want to ask too, is that in your teaching, uh, in the process of moving from empathy to imagination, you talk about this in your book and then also from risk to reflection, uh, how do you help people, um, overcome the fear of risk of taking a risk? That's such a good question. Uh, I, I think risk is one of those things that people decide if, if they're a risk taker or not. Like, nah, it's not me. Or yeah, I like to, I'm good. I can take risk. I don't, I don't know why we do that. It probably has a lot to do with how we were raised, our family systems, our church systems, our personality, what we think about the Bible. Um, there, there's a lot here. A couple of things I'll say. I, I believe that, you know, being able to take risk and fail, actually have them not work out, bounce back from them and kind of like land on your feet going two steps forward is what experts would say, they would sort of call it resilience. And they would say that's the number one skill people need in a changing world of work. So whether or not we're excited about the idea of risk, it's actually probably very important for the work we're doing, no matter the industry, but particularly in the church when we try a lot of things and, and they don't work out. So number one, I would say at the core of things, you know, when I started to realize that risk and, and kind of resilience were coming up in all the work I was doing, I felt really encouraged actually. I'm like, well, this is a Christian word, right? We, we are a faith that's predicated on new life that emerges from really tough stuff and from death. You think about just the, the arc that happens between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, good Friday, Jesus is put to death. Saturday, we're like, waiting and it's dark and, you know, kind of wondering and grieving. And then Sunday means what it does. The resurrection of Christ means what it does because we're living in our grief, right? And so that new life and that celebration and that resurrection come on the heels of death. And because we are resurrection people, I really do believe resilience is a gift of the resurrection. And because of that, like death doesn't have the final word and our failures will never define us. We'll learn from them. There'll be things we need to take seriously, but they're not going to define us. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is I have, a, I actually have a lot of women who say to me, I'm not really a risk taker. I'm, I'm more comfortable with empathy, but I'm not really a risk taker. 
And I, I, I started to think that was pretty curious, Ryan's. And I wouldn't go as far to say men take risks and women empathize. That would be unfair. But I'm just saying I had women who were like, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not comfortable. And then we started to break it down a little bit. And I'm thinking of one woman in particular, uh, you know, she's an immigration lawyer and she was telling me just like how she sits with her clients. It's, it's not unlike the work of a pastor. She sits with them, you know, kind of does that counseling thing and then helps them build a plan for their way forward. And she's like, ah, oh, they moved me to, their stories moved me to tears, Michaela. And I said to her, if you have ever truly empathized with somebody, you have already taken a risk, right? You've already decided that you're going to let their story impact your story and that you're going to care. And so for those of us who are a little bit risk averse, whether it's because we're afraid of failing or because we just don't think of ourselves like that, I would say that we are grafted into a story where failure never has the final word and that resilience is a gift of resurrection. And maybe we ought to widen our imaginations about what risk all that risk is, right? If you've ever empathized, if you've ever imagined, if you've ever stepped out and tried something, you've already taken a risk. The very last thing I'll say here is that I try to encourage people, again, I'm from Nebraska, so I speak in a lot of farm idioms. And in Nebraska, we talk about the bet the farm kind of risk. These are the ones that, you know how they, these go, Ryan, you got to go all in, you got to make the big move. It's a whole thing. And those risks are scary and we can overthink them. And sometimes God does call us to do those kind of risks. But so much of the time, we're talking about ordinary things, things that be, can be done with the the resources we already have, our time, our brains, our hearts, our friendships, things that can be done within the next five to seven days. I try to break it down and get very, very, again, ordinary. And once you start doing those more ordinary, doable risks, you start to realize that those, you, those muscles are getting stronger than you might have imagined they were. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you talked about talking about risk and um and failure. It's one thing I think we would sometimes do is we don't understand that failure is not bad. Failure is a, is is a learning tool. Um, even even in ministry, and I, and again, I lean on the side personality wise as being very driven, um, somewhat ambitious, which is also a negative part of our personality as well. Um, and I'm not naturally a people pleaser. Uh, that's, uh, and, but my wife is, my mm -hmm. wife is the total opposite of me. And my mm -hmm. wife is, has been a great, uh, partner along a journey because she's the, in my journey of ministry, because she's the one who takes my reins and puts me a certain level and helps me in that way when it comes to not still allow me to take risk, uh, but allow me to see risk and take risk in a responsible ways. Mm. Um, and I say that to say this is that uh, I think it's important to have people around you who are not like you, who are not who, people who lead differently, uh, that can also give you a different perspectives uh, in your leadership and how to lead uh, to help you with areas like this, to where if you're if that is not your natural, if you struggle with taking risks, someone who can push you. Uh, healthy and push you in ministry or in the work field or wherever aspect you're at uh, to push you in the direction of taking healthy risks to see your leadership grow and what in your particularly ministry as us as church leaders mm -hmm. see your ministry grow and reaching people for Christ because part of reaching people for Christ is taking risks. Um, you have to figure out what works culturally because what works what works here in, in the East Coast 
may not work on the West Coast. So you have to mm -hmm. figure things out. And how you do that is by taking risks, trying things, working things out. until you find something that works and works in connecting people and reaching people for Christ? Yeah. Amen. Your wife sounds like a, a great partner for you. And I, I do. I think that we have to be around other people who can help us sort it out. Right. I also would, would highly suggest, although I know sometimes this is easier said than done, the role of mentors, people who have walked the road before, even if context is different because times are different. These are people who have worked out taking risk and failing, who have worked out leaning on others for advice. Some of those things that stay true even if the sort of methods, the context, the times are really different. Absolutely. Well, Michaela, um, if somebody wanted to connect with you to learn more about your book or just have questions on this topic of how to, how to make work better, uh, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, well, I'd love to hear from anybody. And I think, I really do think that ministers are facing challenges about how to think about their work in really particular ways. I'm hearing it all the time. So if you want to get in touch, please do a couple of ways. Uh, the website or the place I work that I talked about, the Dupree Center for Leadership is just Dupree.org, D-E-P-R-E-E. -E. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn as Michaela O'Donnell. So uh, any of those avenues would be a good way to get in touch. Well, Michaela, I just want to thank you for taking your time to come out on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been great. Man, I really enjoyed the conversation uh, that I had with Michaela it, and also pouring into her book as well. And again, I, I am in the process of finishing it. And there's some great nuggets here when it comes specifically for ministry and, and how to navigate calling. Mm. We like to throw that that word around a lot. So we throw it around in our ministries like and, and I mean, I remember myself as a kid. Uh, so what, what in the world does it mean to be called? How am I called to something? Does that mean that if I do anything else but decide this one thing that God has called, and yes, I'm doing air quotes right now, if you can't see me, <laughs> doing called to this one thing, if I don't do it, am I being disobedient in whatever, in, when it comes to what God wants for my life? Well, yeah, that. And if you're called to something, again, air quotes, um, does that necessarily mean you do it the way you think it's supposed to look? Uh, I, I had this conversation with my wife when we were transitioning out of my last church, and uh, I was there was a lot of hurt. We talked about this recently, um, and I was strongly considering trying to find a secular job for a while so that I could go find a large church and hide in it for a bit while I healed. And I felt like that was disobedient to my calling. And she was like, sweetie, if you find a different job that's not necessarily full-time in the church and you're still ministering to teenagers, you're still fulfilling the calling that God placed on your life to, to make disciples of teenagers. And uh, it doesn't have to look exactly the way you think it's supposed to look, which is full-time youth pastor at a church somewhere. So I think that that's something that you know, we, we don't quite understand. And I agree with you, the whole calling air quotes thing, like, what does that even look like? How, how do you know what a calling is? Um, because if you look at the great commission, what well, we're all called to ministry of some kind, we're all called to evangelism. Some of us are gifted, lucky, <laughs> you know, some of us are terrified by that. <laughs> um, we're all called to discipleship. Um, so, you know, what level does that look like for each of us? I think that that's something that you got to work out on your own. 
Uh, and I think one of the other things that this brought to my mind in the conversation, and we talked about this off air, Ryan, is the fact that um, the doing ministry within church, the local church context is very unique. Uh, my my brother-in-law-in-law, we both married in, uh, he's a pastor down in Florida, and he told me, he said, you got to know two things about running a church. One, you can't run it like a business because it's a ministry. It's not a business. And two, you have to run it like a business. <laughs> Because you're managing people and money. That That's what you do in a business. You manage people and money and you deliver a product. And we're not delivering a product, so to speak. We're delivering hope for all mankind um, and a message. But that's our product. And we have to be good stewards of our time. We have to be good stewards of our volunteers. We have to be good stewards of our money. And that takes a certain amount of business acumen, so to speak. So finding this balance of ministry and calling and work versus you know, doing it because you love it. That whole, if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life kind of deal. And then realizing, oh no, work was given to mankind before the fall. <laughs> so it's not, an, it's not a product of the fall. You know, it's all con- complicated. No, no, I agree. And it's, 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 and, uh, and again, when we're talking about uh, work and, and how does that connect with, with ministry and we talk about, yes, church, in some sense, is run like a business. You have a budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to straight try to stay in your budget, manage money, people's money very well, now, all that. But um, I think we get sometimes get lost mm. in the quote unquote organizational mindset, and, and that's one of the reasons why I do not like the term describing a church as an organization. Um, and I know if, if, if you do that, you're listening and your church does this, it's not anything that's necessarily wrong. It's just, I don't like calling an organization because for me, it gives me too much of a mindset of a, this is a place of business, mm-hmm. um, rather than the ministry. And so I don't like labeling the church, the local church as an organization, even there are some similarities, uh, from church and how churches run when it comes to finances to some things on the business mm-hmm. side of things as well. But it's, it's just, again, it's find the healthy balance and um, of us understanding that our calling is not necessarily to uh, a vocation as much it is to obedience mm. uh, and obedience in God's word, obedience. And can we talk about the, the Great Commission? Uh, David just mentioned that earlier aspects of the Great Commission is being obedient in, in making disciples, sharing the love of Christ and making disciples, mm-hmm. being obedient in that. And no matter what you do, as long as that is being obedient and following God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and loving other people, um, then the rest is fine. Whatever you decide to do, it's okay. You're being and you're in God's calling no matter what you do, as long as you're being obedient in those aspects when it comes to your, when it comes to your relationship with God. Um, and I, it took me a long time to understand that. Uh, uh, beating my head, side of my head, uh, researching, reading books about calling, uh, feel like I wasn't doing what God wanted me to do because uh, I'm not doing the ministry that I think I'm supposed to be doing and mm. believe God's calling me to. And it took me a while to really grasp that it's okay. I don't have to be in vocational ministry to be doing what God's calling me to do. God's called me into obedience. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, God's called me to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind and love other people uh, as myself. And, and by being obedient to those things, it doesn't matter what I do vocationally. I'm following God's calling and what he's called me to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think if we if we allow ourselves to slip into the mindset of it being more businessy than ministry, if you want to make that the dichotomy there, uh, I think it presents the danger of uh, turning the church into what the temple became when Jesus started flipping tables. And uh, that I think that danger is there. I think it's always there. Um, but that's the difference between the church and the world. In a, in a business, success is making money for the business. In the church, success is obedience. And that's it. We obey and we leave the outcome to God. Isaiah lived that. Jeremiah lived that. The apostles lived that. I mean, if you look at them from a business standpoint, all of them were colossal failures. <laughs> but if you look at it from God's point of view, they did what he asked them to do. And God, in his sovereignty, took care of the rest. And uh, and he even took care of them doing what needed to be done. So um, hopefully this was an encouragement for you guys today. Uh, hopefully this was something that uh, if you haven't thought about it yet, you're thinking about it now, <laughs> and uh, it'll be challenging to you. And uh, we do want to thank you for um, listening to the podcast. Thank you for being faithful listeners. If you haven't yet, uh, please go to whatever podcast platform you listen to us on that allows comments and reviews and, and leave a star or comment review. Uh, and this allows us to keep our content near the top of the search results so that people who are doing youth ministry the daily grind, the frontline trenches of youth ministry, the, the spiritual war that we're in, they'll be able to find us and we'll be able to be a resource for them. Uh, and uh, if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, um, if there's something that we have not covered recently or it's been a while and, and new information has come out, we'd love to hear from you so we can cover it again. Uh, we'd love to connect with you on our Facebook group, Youth and Culture Facebook group. We also have a page and you can go uh, check us out there. And don't forget, we're also part of the RFP Network along with nine other podcasts. So check out those guys at rfpnetwork.org. And uh, we'd love to connect with you there too. Well, guys, stay tuned for our next episode.